us. It's, don't let you even jealous for us when our tensions go elsewhere. And just thinking through uh, that on a humanly perspective, that jealousy feels that you feel that whenever we put some other God above you. It's just kind of crazy, um, the hurt that comes in that. And so it's my prayer, God, that, um, that we see you for who you are. Um, this great, powerful God, you've brought armies back to life. You've um, given us life from our spiritual death. Um, and that, God, a lot of times we don't put our hope in you and who you are, but you have pursued us and will continue to pursue us. Um, God, may we turn back and pursue you in the same way that you've, you've come after us. God, uh, as, as the word is brought here today, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say so we can be convicted where conviction is needed so we can be edified and encouraged where that's needed as well. But as always, God, in all things, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. And we pray this on your name. Amen. I thought I was wired, but I wasn't wired. Let's read together, beginning with verse 9, chapter 1, Philippians. This is one of Paul's letters to the churches. He is writing from incarceration in Rome. He is in a rented house, although he is confined. He does have people coming and going. Verse 9. This I pray. This is my prayer, Paul is saying that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. The Revised Standard Version says, in knowledge and all perception. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, we're all marching in that direction, being filled with the fruit of righteousness 
which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Dear Lord, open our hearts and minds, give us understanding, and give us direction. Speak to every heart here, including mine, the way we need to hear your voice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is Paul's prayer for the church. It's well thought out. Paul had no doubt thought long and hard about his words as he prays for the church. As you look at the larger passage, you realize that it is a prayer from a heart filled with love and thanksgiving for this church. As he looks back and remembers them, as he does often, he tells us, he is thankful to God for their participation in the ongoing of the gospel and their support of him. Paul and this church had a very special relationship and they supported Paul all the way through. Even in Rome, they sent someone to see about him, to bring him supplies and also to help him in his ministry. So it's Paul's prayer for the church. The Bible is a book of prayer. Now it's more than that. It's a book of instruction. It's a book of guidance. It's a book of calling us to the right path. But it is a book of prayer. As you go through the Bible, there are many prayers recorded in the Bible. God's people prayed on various occasions and at different times. But also in the Bible we have examples of where people prayed and God moved in their direction for their good and for the advancement of the gospel. You realize, I know, that our Lord was a man, was a person of prayer. His whole ministry was bathed in prayer. Every major event in his life he prayed sought his father's direction and his father's guidance. He wanted to do his father's will above all else, and so he sought his father at every major event. But all along the way, every day, day by day, our Lord was a person of prayer. His prayers were so effective, his disciples said, Lord, you teach us how to pray. And you remember he gave what is called the model prayer. It was really the disciples' prayer. Only a disciple can pray that prayer that Jesus gave. And you remember his final words on the cross? His final moments on this earth as a person? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So his life was bathed in prayer. He was a person of prayer. And then Paul was a man of prayer. From the day he cried out on the Damascus Road, realizing who Jesus was, until here present in this scripture, he's in Rome, he prayed. He preached about prayer. He taught about prayer. He encouraged the churches to pray. And he encouraged them to pray for each other. 
And he even asked that they pray for him. Think of that. The mighty theologian, the writer of the major part of the New Testament, a mighty preacher, missionary, pastor, and yet he puts himself right alongside the people, realizing his need of God's help and God's direction in his life. That shows Paul's humility almost as much as anything. There's a lot of good things in life. There's a lot of good things in the Christian life. But there is nothing better, no greater spiritual exercise than prayer. You can bow your head and address the eternal God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But you know, praying like that takes a lifetime of practice. Well, as you look at this prayer, some things come to mind. First of all, it was a pastoral prayer. That is the pastor praying for the people, holding them up before the Lord, asking God's finest things for their life, wanting the very best for them. A pastoral prayer. The pastor praying for the people. You know, in some church services, in the order of service, they have the pastoral prayer. And the pastor prays for the preacher, for the people. And you know, the preacher, one pastor said he spent as much time preparing his prayer as he did preparing his message. We Baptists don't have that in our order of service. Maybe we don't think it's important or maybe we, don't, we think it's a little bit too high church. But whether it's in private or in public, pastor's greatest privilege, honor, and responsibility is to hold the people up before the Lord in prayer, asking God's presence, power, and direction in their lives. Pastor praying for the people. Sometimes the question is asked, is the pastor a prophet or is he a priest? Some I hear say that they are only a prophet. They're not a priest. But I'm here to say the pastor is not only a prophet. He is a priest. He brings forth the word of the Lord as a prophet preacher is supposed to do. But he also holds the people up before the Lord in prayer, asking God's direction in their lives. A pastoral prayer. Pastor praying for the people. It's a good thing when people go away and say, the Lord spoke to me today in the worship service, through the music and through the prayers, and through the pastor's sermon, the Lord spoke to me today. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But you know, it's just as beautiful. It's just as wonderful. When people go away saying, my pastor prayed for me today. And then this is an intercessory prayer. 
That simply means one person praying for another. That is, you can bow your head and lift one person up before the Lord in prayer. And that is your privilege. And that is one of the finest things you can do for another person. You may aid them in many ways. You may help them in many ways. But prayer is one of the finest things you can do. To call down the power and the presence of the Almighty in their life. Intercessory prayer. One person praying for another. You know, in prayer meeting, when the church gathers, they gather to study the Bible and to pray. And requests of prayer are made. And people are held up to the Lord in prayer. You know the old church covenant, most of you probably haven't seen one. They used to hang on the back wall of the church. And that is a pledge between the people to each other and to God. And in one thing, they pledged to pray for each other. It wasn't the law. It wasn't anybody standing over them telling them they had to do, but they just pledged because of their love for each other to pray for each other. But you know, the Bible invites us and calls us to pray for each other. And do you know that you're invited to come to the throne of grace boldly and to make your request known unto God? We all need prayers of each other. Even the great Apostle Paul realized his need of the people's prayer. A pastor friend performed a wedding of a couple and it was a private wedding. Only a witness was present in the sanctuary of the church and when they came in the woman was telling the man everything to do. Straighten up. Stand up straight. Square your shoulders. Smile. Remember to say the words the pastor asked you to say. And every time the pastor would say a word, she would repeat the word to the husband, the soon-to-be husband. So he was sure to get it right. And so finally, when the service was over, they went out the back door. The young fellow stuck his head back in the door and he said, Pray for me, preacher. I guess he felt like he was going to need it. But you know, we all need the presence and the power and the prayers of each other. And you have that beautiful privilege of praying for each other. And you know, if in the church worldwide and the church local would take this matter seriously of praying for each other, there would be a new day dawn in the church and the world would take notice. Pastoral prayer and intercessory prayer. And then Paul prayed for every one of them. As you read this larger passage, and especially in the King James, it emphasizes Paul praying for each and every member of that church and even praying for you every church even to this day
Paul saw every person as important. See these fine young boys right here. And what shall the Lord do with them? Every person is important, created in the image of God. And Paul addressed every member of the church. He didn't have specials, VIPs. He saw everyone as important. If you were going to pray for this church or for the church worldwide, what would you pray about? What would you say? What would be on the top of your list? Would it be another building? Would it be a larger crowd? Would it be that people would make professions of faith and place their life and trust in the Lord? Or would it be more people to join the church? Or would it be greater financial income that the church would have a stronger financial base be able to reach further out into the world? That's important. But you know, the first church turned the world upside down with very little resources. But they shared what they had. And we are encouraged to do the same. First of all, as you look at verse 9, Paul prayed that love for each other would grow and grow. Listen to the words. I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Paul's desire for the church was that God's love in our hearts, shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, would grow and become stronger and more motiv- as a motivation of our dealing with each other. Now, as you know, a lot of things motivate us. Let's don't close our eyes to that. But Paul's desire was that God's love in our heart would grow and increase and be a stronger motivation in our love for each other. So Paul here goes to the very central message of the Christian faith, God's love and his love in us. And he prays that it will grow and multiply. Now Paul did not say they did not love each other. They did. And if you read Paul's letters and the book of Acts, they expressed their love in many ways. And they certainly expressed their love to Paul. They stood with him all the way. And every pastor can be thankful for those who stand with him. And over the years, I was surprised from where my support came. It came sometimes from those folks I didn't realize it was coming from, but it's a wonderful thing for those who stand with the pastor. Now, he does not say you do not love each other. You do. And you express that love in many ways. But his desire is that love 
would grow and grow and continue to grow in their motivation for and relationship with each other. Behind this <clears throat> sentence is a picture. You know, the Greek language is a picturesque language. I'm not a Greek student. But I'm told that this word abound here means like a creek overflowing. Have you ever seen a creek full of water? And it overflows. Fertilizes the area around and sometimes does a lot of damage. But this is the ideal here. That love would flow and overflow. Now what is Christian love? Love is defined in so many ways. By our culture it's defined cheap, meaningless, and low. But what is Christian love? I've often said Christian love is seeking the best interest of the other person. And that's partly right, but it just doesn't go far enough. You can only define Christian love by the New Testament and by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the incarnation of God's love for us. And that's the only way, place and the only way you can define Christian love. Frank Stagg, who was, was former professor of New Testament Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, gone to be with the Lord now, said that Christian love, as it relates to the other person, is to seek their best interest regardless of the cost are the consequences. That blows my little definition out of the water. It points to the cross. For God so loved the world he gave. God's love calls for us to take up our cross and follow him daily. Love is not cheap. It's not meaningless. It calls for self-denial. It calls for the giving of oneself. Regardless of the cost or the consequences. Christian love is not cheap. It's not easy. You've heard the story about the old boys telling his girlfriend how much he loved her. You know anything about that? And he said to her, I'd climb the highest mountain. I'd swim the deepest sea. I'll be over Saturday night if it don't rain. Christian love is not cheap. It's not easy. Do you know the Isaiah house? The church here supports the Isaiah house over here. It cares for children in between. Mike Rowe, who's a television personality, was over there to dedicate that place. He made two statements, I remember. One is, what needs to be done is simple. He said, it's very simple, very plain. But he said, it's not easy. God demonstrated his love by his death, on the, on his death of his son on the cross. And we demonstrate God's love 
in our life. As we give sacrificially to others. So Paul prays for God's love. And then he prays that they might know what's important and what is not. You know, in life, things can get confused, can't they? And sometimes we can spend a lot of time and energy on things that are just not important. And you know, that can happen in the church as well. Sometimes we can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on things that really don't matter. They may be good or they may not be. But we can spend a lot. But he says, major on what is important. This is how he says it, verse 10. That you may approve things that are excellent. That you may look, cease, dwell on, be involved in those things which are excellent. Seek that which is best. Good. Dwell on that which is important. You know, this this Philippian church was a good church. It was a good group of people. They loved each other and they supported Paul. But you know, it was not a perfect church. But you know, there's not any perfect churches, are there? You know why? Because it's made up of folks like me and you who are imperfect. But if you ever find the perfect church, don't join. Because if you do, it'll soon be imperfect if you get what I mean. But this was a good church. But in the church, there was some division. Two women had a disagreement. You ever heard of that? And they just... Couldn't get along. But they were good women. They were good church workers. They worked right alongside the great apostle Paul. They had his teaching and instruction. But yet they had a disagreement. You know you can take almost any subject. And start right over here at this gentleman. And go all the way through. And you probably find differences of opinion. But that's not the important thing. Dwell on that which is important. The Moffat translation says that which is vital. Deal on that which is most important. God loves the world and when we came to him he placed his love in our hearts and we're to love each other, and the world around us. That's what's important. And then he prayed that they would live open and sincere lives, not phony baloney. Notice how he says that in the last part of verse 10, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. The revised version says pure and blameless for those two words. They mean the same thing. To live sincerely. Now you heard the word you can be sincere and be wrong, but not if you're sincere in the right sense of the word. It means here to be without wax. The pottery makers would make a piece of pottery 
and they would make a mistake. And rather than tearing it down and starting all over, they would take wax and put it in the flaw. They would paint it and present it as though it was something it was not. To live as we are. Johnny Cash, you know, some of you are aware of Johnny Cash, if not all of you. He sings that old song, I'm just an old lump of coal, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. Well, Cliff Barris said of Johnny Cash, said he's honest. And that's what we should be in our relationship with each other. But it also could mean to be seen in the sunlight. Things look different in the sunlight, don't they? I remember when I was going to college, I worked for H.M. Flagler up here at H.M. Flagler's Men's Store. Most of you probably don't remember that. He's been gone a long time. But this fellow came in one day wearing a sport coat, and I showed him what we had, and he, he looked through there, and he found something he liked. And he said, can I take it out on the street and look at it in the sun? He said, you know, uh, it looks better in the sun. Well, <clears throat> I said, okay, but I was a little bit hesitant because I knew if he ran off down the street with a sport coat, that'd be more than my week's, week's wages, so <laughs> I'd be out. But anyway, he took it out. He looked at it inside and out. He came back in and he said, yeah, that's what I want. He said, you know, things look different in the life. Live a simple life. And he says, without offense. And the word behind that is a traveler going to a strange country. You ever go in a strange place and you didn't know exactly where you were? And you probably feel like you need a sense of direction, but today you just tap it in there. <laughs> it points you in the right way, you know. But we didn't used to have that days gone by. But someone sends the traveler in the wrong direction. So live that our lives point people in the right direction. And then finally, Paul prayed, verse 11, that our lives will be full of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, our lives are filled with something. And every day we're putting something in there. Some of it's garbage. But here, notice in verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Righteousness is right relationship with God. You know what it means to be in right relationship with another person, don't you? Our right relationship with God comes through and by Jesus Christ. What he did for us. It's not what we do for ourselves. As the old song says, only trust him. Only trust him. He will save you. He will save you. God implants his righteousness in us. We're in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But... He's talking about fruits of righteousness. 
the fruit that comes from that righteous relationship with God. Now, fruits are not works. Anybody can do good works. I remember in our community, there was a fellow, he was Johnny on the spot when anything happened. He was there with his presence. He'd do whatever he could, and he was there with his, with his purse if it meant they needed some money. But you know, he was not a Christian. He was not a member of the church. He didn't go to church. Anybody can do good works, but the fruit of righteousness is only produced by Jesus Christ in us as we cooperate with him. You know, in the church, in the family, on the job, cooperation is a mighty, mighty big word. And as we cooperate with the Lord, he produces these fruits of righteousness in us. It is not self-made or man-made. It is God's work in our hearts. Now, Paul doesn't miss the fruits of righteousness, but he does in Galatians, and here they are. The fruit of the Spirit is, notice he makes it singular and not plural, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Those things come from the Spirit of the living God within us. You know, you can't make an apple tree grow, grow apples. You can fertilize it. You can insecticize it. <laughs> you spray on it. And you can fertilize it, but only the tree can produce the fruit. Only the Spirit of Christ in us, as we cooperate with Him, produces those fruits. But as we march towards the Lord, that our lives would be clothed with the fruits of righteousness. You know, men sometimes don't care much how they look, but women, you know, usually they try to, uh, you know, look good. The fruits of righteousness as we present ourselves to the Lord. Notice the last part of that verse, and he gives the purpose of it all. Well, I better turn back where I was. There's some trash falling out here. No, that's some bulletin. Unto the glory and praise of God. Not to the praise of Paul. Not to the praise of the Philippians. Not to the praise of you or me, but to the praise, the glory, and praise of God. Glory means character. And you know there's a difference between character and reputation. Reputation is one thing. Character is something else. But as God's character is revealed in us by the fruits of the Spirit, God is honored Glorified, and it causes others to praise God. So, as you think about praying for the church, I commend to you Paul's prayer as a guide in your praying 
for the church. As our musicians come and lead in the hymn of invitation or the closing hymn, I'll be out front like the pastor. And if you need to speak with me, I will be there. Brother?